Edmund Daw, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to episode five of this podcast for piano teachers. I hope that wherever you are, you and your loved ones are doing okay as we continue to move through this pandemic. When I launched the podcast about two months ago, it was sort of a pandemic project. Restrictions were seriously impacting our profession and many other professions and communities around the world. I was scheduled to give a performance and make a presentation at a music teacher's conference, and that conference has been postponed twice due to COVID. So I thought that a podcast would be an opportunity to share my thoughts, experiences, and research on piano teaching with teachers in Canada. Well, I want to express my appreciation for all of the positive feedback I've received from many, many listeners, and I'm so delighted to now have hundreds of listeners in 35 countries on six continents. So thank you. I want to remind you that there is a PDF listening guide for this podcast in the podcast description on Buzzsprout. Today's episode is entitled A Beginner's Foundation. I'm presenting some ideas on beginner's methods. Those of you who teach beginners are doing very important work. I would argue the most important work because you are laying the groundwork, the foundation for all future playing. Those early years give the students important basic skills, inspire them, give them knowledge and experiences that will help them progress musically and technically. What they learn in the early years and how they are taught and engaged in the process will determine how they progress as they continue on through elementary and into intermediate and advanced repertoire. For some, it will determine whether or not they continue lessons through the teenage years. For every student, I believe the experiences they had with piano lessons will determine if piano playing, listening to music, or attending concerts will be a lifelong activity. Let me begin by reading you a quote, a statement by Adele Marcus, a renowned teacher who taught at the Juilliard School in New York for many years. She said, Elementary training is of paramount importance. It is like the foundation of a house. If the foundation is really solid from the standpoint of musicianship and basic principles of study and practice, then it is much easier to work on an advanced level and the whole structure will not fall apart so easily. Adele Marcus uses the word foundation. And that word appears time and time again when looking at the literature written about piano methods for beginners. When I began taking lessons as a young child, there weren't many choices when it came to piano methods. My teacher used John Thompson's Teaching Little Fingers to Play. It was first published in January 1936 and is still fairly widely used today. At that time, when I began lessons in the mid-1960s, there were two, possibly three, method series that were commonly used where I grew up, and there was usually a single book in each level, with very little or no supplementary material available in repertoire, theory, ear training, musicianship, or technique. So it was up to the teacher to provide all the other enrichment and materials. Many teachers simply followed one book, whatever was available. So what I'm talking about in this episode is not just from my own teaching experience, but also from the method book that was used when I was a child and looking back how I learned, what I learned, and the challenges I faced as I continued my studies. So compare that with today, where piano teachers have an abundance of riches. Currently, there are at least a dozen piano methods for beginners used extensively throughout North America. 
Furthermore, never before have there been so many method series where several books are coordinated with the main method book in each level, along with all sorts of other supplementary materials. Research in the field of piano pedagogy has grown and developed so much over the past 40 years. As a result, modern piano teachers have a tremendous amount of excellent publications available. As I mentioned in the last episode, if you attend a large piano pedagogy conference, visiting a music publisher's display can be both exciting and overwhelming. Plus, teachers today have all of those online resources available to them. So today's teachers have plenty of choices, excellent choices. So for me, the question is not what method is best, but more like what am I looking for in a method? What aspects of piano playing are absolutely critical to develop in those early years, those foundational years? Well, today I want to talk about what to me is critical to give you some aspects to think about when you are considering or assessing a piano method. Episode 3 was about teaching students to be musical detectives. Well, as teachers, we have to be detectives when looking at piano methods. A couple of things we have to remember. We have to remember that millions of students all over the world are studying piano. Students of all ages, preschoolers, average age beginners, older beginners, adults. The sale of piano methods is a substantial business internationally. I was looking for statistics about this. I couldn't find the details I wanted, but I did find that the sale of sheet music in the United States in 2020 was reported to be about $236 million. And I wasn't able to locate figures on what portion of that amount is in the sale of piano methods, but we are talking about huge business worldwide. So when we're dealing with numbers that large, we also have to realize that marketing plays an important role in the promotion and sale of piano methods. And with new methods, supplementary materials are appearing on a regular basis. So I feel that the modern piano teacher is best equipped if you have some ideas and knowledge about important things, important criteria to look for in a method. Another thing I want to mention is what I call the method disclaimer. I've quoted Francis Clark, renowned teacher and author, several times in previous podcasts. In the video, Conversations with Frances Clark, at one point she was asked the question that if she were on a deserted island with a group of piano students and the only piano method available to her was a bad one, a poorly designed one, outdated, would she use it? And she responded, smiling, and she said, oh yes, I'd figure out how to use it, adapt it, revise it in order to have success in my piano teaching. So I want to begin with a very important statement, a statement that I call, as I said, the method disclaimer that success in a piano studio is ultimately determined by the teacher, not the piano method publication. I also want to mention that it can be challenging talking about specific aspects of piano teaching and piano playing because they are all interconnected. The physical aspect of piano playing, the technical aspect, the eyes, the ears, the brain, etc., all of these are interconnected and they all have to cooperate in order to make it work. So if I'm examining a method, what am I looking for? Well, number one on my list is music literacy. For me, the biggest test of a piano method is how it develops music literacy, a student's ability to read music, to read music, not just notes. Helping our students become good, fluent readers is one of the biggest challenges we face. 
but the ability to read music is critical. It impacts the speed with which students can learn music and make progress, whether or not they are ultimately frustrated as the music becomes more challenging. For some, if they continue with piano lessons or are able to continue to enjoy making music informally and into adulthood. So the ability to read music is essential for lifelong learning and enjoyment. And it is concerning when you think about it that so many students around the world can take lessons for years and still not be able to read music well. So again, I want to clarify that when I say good readers, I'm talking about reading music, not just notes. So we have the notes, the rhythms, the expression markings, the articulation, the style, etc. Being able to identify and communicate what is in the score. In episode one, Priorities and Perspectives, I talked about renowned educational psychologist Carl Rogers and his book, Freedom to Learn. And he said that successful teaching depends on the teacher's ability to see things from the student's perspective. So when we are teaching students to read music, what exactly are we asking them to do? Well, I believe we are asking them to learn and to communicate fluently in a very complex language. The language of music is full of new symbols, a music staff, clef signs, time signatures, notation, rhythm, articulation, and expression markings. In terms of the physical process of reading and eye movement, music has to be read, it has to be scanned horizontally and vertically on the music staff. In a much larger area of space on a page than a child's eye is used to when learning printed words on a page. And it's a type of scanning that the young eye is not used to. On the music staff, there are subtle differences between notes on lines and notes in spaces. In addition, we can have notes that have little dots beside them, articulation markings, etc. And this can impact the student's accuracy in reading. Then there's pitch and contour, musical lines, melodies. And they're not in a straight line, not like reading words horizontally across a page. Again, requiring different eye movements. There's a lot to take in, and eventually there are chords and thicker textures where several notes are played simultaneously. The note symbols are connected to part of the alphabet, but it isn't just a note with a letter name. It's not just middle C. There's also the type of note that tells us the duration of the sound. Is it a quarter note, a half note, and what does that mean? So there's rhythm with an underlying pulse or beat. Rhythm is a process that must be felt as well as read. And if that isn't enough, all of these symbols on the score must be expressed in sound. And this requires the use of the ear and the brain and the physical process of playing, the choreography. So many different levels of learning, and there are many different requirements here, all interconnected. So if we were to think about Carl Rogers and from a child's perspective, we are asking a lot. So when you look at a method book, how does that method teach this complex language? At the start of the method, do reading exercises begin with off-the-staff notation? This is a great idea to develop a sense of pitch, melodic contour, and then gradually proceed to staff reading so that the student doesn't have to absorb too much too soon. How and when are the grand staff and musical alphabet introduced? All at once, gradually, the complex visual grand staff that we all had to learn. When I was a child, it was introduced all at once in the earliest lessons, and it was a lot to take in. Our landmark notes, such as bass clef F, middle C, treble G, other, or others, utilized as reference points to aid reading 
So you learn to read the notes in relation to those landmarks, those pillars. How does note naming factor into the reading process? Note naming and note reading are two very different processes. Being able to name the notes is important, but only part of a foundation for developing reading skills. Many methods have supplementary books with note naming exercises and games. These are good, but note naming is really one of the introductory steps to learning to read music. A huge question is, how are intervals introduced and developed in beginner's methods? Being able to read, recognize intervals, and measure interval distance on the keyboard is one of the most important aspects of developing good music readers. When any pianist is reading fluently, at whatever age level, the pianist isn't, is not literally reading every single note. You are recognizing intervals, patterns, musical direction, contour, etc. So does the method teach intervals and is the teaching of intervals on the page linked to developing an understanding of the layout of the piano keyboard and where those intervals are on the keyboard? It's not just seeing the interval on the page, but finding it on the piano. Also developing the ability to play intervals without looking at the keyboard. Knowing how to judge interval distance accurately on the piano is very important. But seeing and playing intervals also involves the ear. The printed score provides the information for visual recognition, but the ear is also involved and must be developed with respect to intervals. So, for example, you want to get to the point where if a student is reading a piece and, and the right-hand melody, say, has an interval of a fourth, but the student overshoots the interval and plays a fifth, the student's ear must signal that it doesn't sound right and also that the distance doesn't feel right. So being able to tell this and, and distinguish this is very important. So these are skills that are developed with time, of course, but they need to be started early. So intervals require a lot of drill and are connected to the visual, the feel on the keyboard, the keyboard layout and the fingering. It's also tied to knowing and remembering the key signature and to the ear. So is there an ear training component with the method to develop listening skills? Not just intervals, but other listening skills. Do the reading exercises cover the entire keyboard? Becoming with, familiar with the entire keyboard is essential for developing good reading, good technique, and, as I've talked about in other episodes, it also awakens the child's ear and imagination to the range of sounds possible on the piano. The piano is orchestra, as I've mentioned before. The method my teacher used when I was a child was a middle C approach. And I remember it was very restrictive in this way. I spent my first year in a small, confined area of the keyboard. I strongly believe it's important to start early with playing in various ranges of the keyboard. It's a different sound, and it's a different feeling for posture, for balance, and it's connected to everything that the student will learn. Then there's the issue of fingering. Does the approach to fingering facilitate the development of good reading skills? In the older methods, finger numbers could be a great hindrance, hindrance to young children in helping them name notes particularly if the method being used is a middle C approach. So how is this handled in the, in the method? Do they gradually reduce the finger numbers? Are note names embedded in the head of the note? These are all important. Introduction and development of the black keys. 
You want your students to become comfortable using the entire keyboard, eventually being able to play in all keys, comfortable with different hand positions. It's very important for all future playing, for scale playing. So a, a multiple key approach. And then when you look at the method, does the repertoire in the book, in, in the series, reinforce the reading process? So when a student learns a new interval, are there pieces and exercises to reinforce what's happening? Then there's the issue of rhythm. You know, some methods will have different systems of counting, whether they use syllables or numbers or whatever. These, these are choices, and I don't feel that one is necessarily better than the other. However, what is important is how does the method teach the physical process of rhythm, because rhythm is a feeling. How is the sense of rhythm developed? So on the one hand, it is reading note values and counting out loud or counting silently. I get that. But it's a feeling of the correct rhythms being played over a pulse or a beat. Joseph Levine, another renowned pianist and teacher, said, and I quote, It is very hard to teach rhythm. It must be felt. Rhythm is spirit in the music, the most human thing in music. End of quote. When the method teaches rhythm, are the larger muscles used in specific activities? Young children are used to using their larger muscles in rhythm games and other exercises. As I said in the last episode, pianists are sometimes called elite athletes of the small muscles. And sometimes starting out immediately with the small muscles with young children, diving into playing immediately might not be the best way. Are there lots of games, activities, exercises using the larger muscles? It can be a great way to lay a foundation for rhythm. But regular rhythmic activity is important to help develop that sense. Then there's the language of musical expression. Are all musical signs, expression marks, etc. covered in a systematic way and reinforced through the pieces and supplementary activities? So that for me is a big question. All of this, how are students taught to read music? I've said a couple of times in episodes about one of my teachers when he went to play for a famous teacher and to audition for her. And when he finished, she looked at him and said, my dear, you know how to read notes, but you don't know how to read music. So this is something that, that has stayed with me. And when I look at method series, how are we developing musical literacy? Because good readers can cover an awful lot of territory in their playing and can develop so much faster than if a student is really struggling with reading. But it is it's a complex process. Another area of concern for me is technique. Do the early lessons help establish a good natural hand position, relaxed arms, good posture? Are the explanations and illustrations clear and effective? And then the idea of choreography at the keyboard where even little children can gradually learn and refine various movements required for artistic piano playing. It is very easy with young children for playing to become static at the keyboard, particularly if you're locked into a sort of a restricted area, restricted range. But this is an important time to begin to learn how to use the fingers, the thumbs, the wrists, the forearms, and so on. And that can begin very early in the training of a student. Is the production of a variety of sounds a part of the method? I've talked and I've already said in this episode about the idea of the piano as an orchestra. 
awakening a child's ears to the possibilities of sound on the instrument. As I've said in an earlier ep episode, the piano is capable of producing so many colors. Children can begin to explore and learn about this at an early age. This is also strongly linked to their technical development. How is the mind and how is the brain engaged in this process? One of my teachers said to me once, you know, the technique is just the mind and the brain controlling the body and the body movements. Do we get the students to think about the sound they want before playing? Are there drills, exercises, games? This is very important for them to use their minds when they're playing, to think about what they're doing, to develop their musical voice, and to make artistic decisions, which they can do at a young age. So there's the mind. How about the ear? How is the ear engaged in the development of technique? The development of technique should be coordinated with the development of the ear. Listening is the key to all work at the piano in order for it to be effective. Listening and assessing what they do at the keyboard. The pianist and teacher uh, Nalita True produced a wonderful video entitled Technique Through Listening. Many of the great pianists of the past say that listening is the most important aspect of piano playing. When it comes to technique, do the technical assignments involve various registers of keyboard? Because depending on where you are playing on the piano, the technical demands can change. They change with the angle of the hand, the forearm, the position of the body. Focusing technical work on the middle register of the piano limits an elementary student for what lies ahead and when they move on into intermediate repertoire. So I'm a firm believer in developing this flexibility early because staying too long in one position can be restrictive and can also create physical tension. Do the technical assignments develop the outside of the hand? Is attention being given to the weaker part of the hand, the fourth and fifth fingers? How often we see young children playing with a very straight fifth finger and playing sort of on the side of their hand. So how is that handled and managed in the, in the method series? Are different touches explored? And this is related to the concept of sound. If students are really listening and, and learning about the possibilities of the instrument, are they learning about different ways of creating those sounds? Whether it's with their fingers, the wrists, the forearms, arm weight, whatever you happen to be working with at that time. Is there a solid preparation for shifting positions? Right, Because they won't stay in one position forever. And how about opening and closing the hand, extending the hand, that elasticity that's needed as students move on through elementary repertoire and into the intermediate. And all of that technical work, does it reinforce and relate to the music that's being studied? And how is that technical work coordinated with the main book in the series? And then there are some additional concepts and supplementary materials. Is composition a part of the method? Composition is a great way for students to develop their creativity, to learn the language of music, to reinforce their understanding and use of notation, and build their self-confidence. As I've said before, children have incredible imaginations. And musical composition with young students can be a very rewarding useful and productive experience. How about keyboard harmony? Will they eventually learn to harmonize simple tunes? 
I mean, every pianist should be able to sit down and play Happy Birthday. Is improvisation encouraged to simply sit at the piano without music and to explore sounds, make up a melody, harmonize it, develop again the creative voice and a sense of freedom at the keyboard where you're not inhibited with the demands of a particular piece you're studying, having to, to look at the music. It's you and the instrument and your creativity. And overall, are the supplementary books well-coordinated with and complementary to the main lesson book in each level of the series? Where you have theory, ear training, technique, activities, additional repertoire. Is the overall presentation colorful, appealing, and motivational for students? But I also want to talk about something in this area that I think needs some consideration. And that is, is the visual component of the method well-balanced and age-appropriate? This is a very important consideration when teaching preschoolers and students, particularly from kindergarten age to about grade two. There's a lot of research to support the theory that focused attention is vitally important for learning in all stages of life. That's a given. In order to learn something, we need to be focused on what we're doing in that moment. But there have been some really interesting studies done that investigate how the amount of visual stimulation can affect a child's ability to learn. Too much visual stimulation can mean too much distraction in a learning process. And as I've already said, and let's remember that what children are trying to learn in the act of reading music is complex enough already. What I find interesting is that studies have shown what they call distractibility, the ability to be distracted, decreases with age. So too much visual stimulation during learning had a negative impact on preschoolers and first and second graders, for example, but not on sixth graders. So therefore, maintaining focus in learning may be particularly challenging for young children because the visual features of a method are too much of a distraction. It might tax their developing and, a, and fragile ability to actively stay on task and ignore distractions. Some researchers have called it visual bombardment. So this is something to think about. When you're looking at a method series, I feel it's something important. What's the visual layout of the method? What are the, what's the graphic design? Is it overloaded with visual materials? especially for young children ages four to seven. In the sources on the listening guide, I list an article that's very interesting. It's, in, uh, it's an online journal. It's called Psychological Science. And there's an article that's entitled Visual Environment, Attention Allocation, and Learning in Young Children When Too Much of a Good Thing May Be Bad. It's a very, very interesting article about how kindergarten students, kindergarten age to about grade two, can be very easily distracted. Where uh, studies were done in, a class, in classrooms that had large amounts of visuals on the walls, and then other classrooms that did not have as much, and how that impacted the learning of the young children in that class. So I think it's something we have to think about even when we're looking at, and especially when we're looking at piano methods, because we're asking a lot of the students and they're not 
in a classroom per se, they're looking at a page in front of them. And so depending on how much visual material is on that page, it could have an impact on their ability to learn. So that's something I want to leave with you as well. When you look at the method series, do you feel that there's a high level of expertise behind it? Can you research the authors of the series and see what their experiences have been and, and, and to see the level of expertise that has gone into creating this method series? Does the method offer other resources? Teacher's guides can be useful. Supplementary books, pieces, studies, software, online resources, flashcards, etc. And if so, take a look at that material and how would you rate it in terms of its quality and usefulness? One other thing to think about is that is the overall cost of each level in the series. Is it cost prohibitive? This is a factor for many families and I think the pandemic has affected the careers of millions of people around the world and many people are struggling. So the cost factor has always been something important to consider and I think it will be very important for many families as we move out of the pandemic. So do you feel that the cost of this method is reasonable? So today I've shared my thoughts on what I believe are very important elements of a beginner's foundation. Information that I hope you will find useful in your detective work as you examine a piano method. And once you examine the method, perhaps you will notice gaps that you will have to fill in with your own creativity in your studio. But as I said in my opening remarks, the early years are so important and lay the groundwork for all future playing. And I'll leave you with a quote by Catherine Goodson, who was a British pianist, very highly respected. There, in fact, there are some fine recordings of her playing on YouTube, if you want to check them out. And I quote, she said, the elementary teachers all over the world have a big responsibility. If they belittle their work with children and pine for a kind of teaching which virtuosos attempt to do, let them realize that they are, in a sense, the foundation of the structure. And although perhaps not as conspicuous as the spire which towers up into the skies, they are certainly of equal importance. End of quote. And there's that word foundation again. So as you work with your students to build the foundation of their structures pianist, I wish you every continued success because a good foundation will serve them well now and in all future playing. So thank you for listening today. Visit my website at edmunddaw.com for more information about my work. Bye for now.